Welcome to Three Night Weekend, where we prepare you for the weekend to come with the help of gaming industry luminaries. I'm Shane Satterfield, and you can find me on the world's most advanced gaming website, Sifted, at sifted.net, or on Twitter, at Dinfire. If you want to support us, head to patreon.com sifted and drop us a pledge. The show goes live for our patrons on Friday and Monday for everyone else. This week, we talk with Frank O'Connor. He's been the face of the Halo franchise for almost two decades, but before that, he was a prominent games journalist. He's currently hustling to complete Halo Infinite before the end of the year, so his time is really valuable right now, and we appreciate him stopping by to chat. All right, it is my honor and privilege to welcome Frank O'Connor to Three Night Weekend. Frank O'Connor has been the, I would say, the shepherd of the Halo franchise for over 17 years at this point. Frank, welcome to Three Night Weekend. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be here, and I I would redefine shepherd as the angry senile dog that runs around barking at anyone who comes anywhere near the farm. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I always, this is one of the things I always have to caveat is I have a job that puts me like kind of out front of a lot of people who are working, you know, crazy hours with to do impossible things that are much harder than what I do. So it's always, you know, kind of sucks as well. Cause you're like, uh, practically everyone deserves more credit than i yeah. do but it's you know it's also it's also part of the job so i think um when i when i was young it was terrifying and um uh, i think i was uh, a little bit more egoless weirdly when i was a kid because i was just marveling at everyone around me mm-hmm. and over the years you're just like oh my god i have to go back to the office and they're going they say oh you've been swanning around in the in the far <laughs> east and, uh, drinking cocktails and <laughs> and taking credit for our hard work, but it's, it's your it job really title, is. though. I mean, yeah, sort of. You are the franchise creative director for Halo. Yeah, I mean, yeah. and and clarify that as well. That that means I'm in charge of the creative for the franchise all up. Still, a giant army of people working on my sure. team and other teams. So, uh, like, I'll work on game story, but at a sort of foundational level, where it's like, what what kind of story we're going to tell? Is this going to be about the Master Chief? Um, what kind of themes are we going to touch? So, and then you know, you have a fantastic narrative team. Paul Crocker, um, he's he's new to me, but he's been working on Halo for many years. How is that um, possible he just, that he's new to you if he's been working? Well, on because uh, he w- he was brought on for for Halo Infinite to to be the narrative director for Halo Infinite, and it's not out yet. I don't know if you checked. Right. Um, yeah, but the, I'm um, well aware. Right, but he's um, he came from the the sort of Batman series. Um, and is and is incredible, and he's the guy, uh, obviously responsible for the storytelling. Uh, Joseph Staten is back, which is uh, mm-hmm. awesome. Again, that's one of those things that seems recent, but he's actually been here for ages now, mm-hmm. um, and uh, never really went away for me because he's been at Microsoft this whole time. Um, but yeah, it's uh, again not not to not to sort of take my eye off my ball. I've got a lot of um, complicated responsibilities, and they're big, um, but it also. I just always want to make sure that the people who deserve the credit are getting it. And it's just one of those things about my job that kind of sucks, but it's, I mean, it's great too. Right. But yeah, uh, yeah. I always have to, I always have to tee up the real geniuses. So. Well, you also have to take a lot of the shrapnel when things don't go well. Uh, right. So. I, yeah. I <laughs> absorb a lot of death threats before they get to better people than me, which is great. So yeah. 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 And before we get started, I do want to give you a special thanks because you know, Halo Infinite, wrapping up development. We know that's a busy time for the team. I just want to appreciate you taking the time uh, out of your busy schedule to spend an hour with us and talk to all your fans. Um, 
So let's actually start back in your younger years. Um, you were a journalist. You may be the first journalist, <laughs> seriously, to jump the line from journalist to developer. But I want to find out what brought you to that point. So tell us a little yeah. bit about your younger years with games. What were some of your favorite uh, systems in games growing up? Have you always really been into video games? Yeah, um, I was when I was a kid in, in I grew up in Scotland. Um, went to school there as well, uh, spent the uh, first part of my career there, well, in, in the UK. And I, I was always into video games. Um, I was, uh, you know, we were, we were dirt poor. I'm not going to do the sob story, but really like broke, like I didn't have a TV. And so like, I was, I tend to be borrowing other people's stuff or playing over at my friend's house. Remember my, one of my first friends when I was a kid, a guy called Craig Wood had a Pong system i can't remember which one because it was kind of irrelevant there but it was you know 52 varieties of pong and then uh did it include friend, skeet as well <laughs> maybe because i it had, might have had the guns I, had a pong I think guns that also had guns the were skeet. the first thing to break i think right yeah. on those systems so <laughs> yeah um but then my my i think where it really took off for me just as a sort of um a, a, wow this is this is a pastime not just a thing that happens to be there was uh my friend neil got an atari 2600 um, I think we called it the VCS. It was called both yeah. things here, but yep. it was it's called both things in America as well. Yeah. And he was, you know, he was similarly poor, um, but uh, he had, you know, he'd saved all his money to get an Atari um, and uh, he had combat and Raiders of the Lost Ark. And we would just play those forever. So it was like really my first, uh, that was actually my first experience of multiplayer um, gaming period. I think for a lot um, of people it was. Yeah. yeah. But also storytelling. So Raiders of Lost Ark, the game has it's got a lot of words from the movie, but nothing really makes you know any kind of narrative literal sense. Um, but those games uh, really kind of blew my mind. And so then the next big thing I did in gaming that, that had any real meaning in my life was getting a ColecoVision. Like I bought it from arcade like the, perfect the, ports. Yeah, finally. It was, yeah, I, I saved for it, and then I bought it from the the UK equivalent of like Sears catalog. I don't think we had lingerie section like you guys do, but we had video <laughs> games. And um, the uh, it was I remember saving for it and scrimping. And that Coleco was that was that changed my life. It was uh, it did literally as it turns out. But at the time, I was like, this is it. And so, but then I was really into arcades, and it's just that's one of the things is missing from the the current gaming experience, right? There's so much other stuff and cool stuff, but the the arcades, like literally, this sort of the smell of arcades is like candy and soda and popcorn and sticky carpets and, and transistors like burning. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> ozone. Yeah. And it was, um, that, that was where it was magical for me. And arcades was also where you saw all the next, uh, technological and gameplay trends. So you would yep. just go through these, the same cycles as the arcades and you're waiting for, you know, there wasn't much press about it. So it's not like you knew marble madness was coming out or space area was coming out. They just pop up and blow your mind. And that that element of surprise uh, was, was, again, it was literally magical. It was like, you know, stranger things um, all sort of wrapped up in a real childhood. And I, I, that's where I knew I loved it. Um, didn't I didn't even know it was really a career until I, I remember reading about, um, I think it's Warren Robinette did the first major Easter egg in Adventure, and it was just his name. And I think that was the first time it occurred to me that people make these. Then the next game maker that i knew was david crane who did pitfall yeah. but then again in the uk he was the first celebrity game scene. developer right yeah. and it was you know some of it was deliberate but it was also just like you know he just had a 
that he himself was a better agent for himself than a lot of these other folks. He also but, made you know, the best were, games. I mean, let's be honest, yeah. his games on Atari 2600 were some of the best on the system. Pitfall 2 um, on 2600 in particular doesn't even look like a 2600 game. It has like a little DSP or extra RAM or something in it. And it's just, again, insane. That game, it was at the end of the 2600's lifespan, but you it looked like the beginning of a completely new generation. And like in a lot of ways, it's better than EcoVision. It's like smooth scrolling and mm-hmm. uh, mind blowing stuff and, and the limitations they had to work with like a 4K ROM, um, you know, but again, it's I think- It's amazing they, what they did. Well, that's the thing. And I don't, I don't mean to harp on about retro gaming, like, uh, you know, like everything used to be better, but the one thing that is missing, I think from kids games now and this isn't universally true and things like Roblox and Minecraft make lie of what I'm about to say, but when you were playing, you know, uh, Defender or, um, you know, Wizard of War, whatever you were playing on these old 8-bit systems, um, you you had to do a lot of filling in with your imagination in a similar way you do when you're reading books, right? When you're yeah. when you're reading Harry Potter before the movies come out, you're imagining all this stuff. And so and that's why the, box art used to be so important. Yeah. Right, and that's Atari twenty six hundred, like the yeah. cartridge and box art, would basically tell you what you're supposed to be seeing while you're playing the games. Right, and Activision. Funny to keep harping on David Crane, but Activision had the most. I mean, I was never confused or uh, felt ripped off by it as a kid. But their art used to look like screenshots, but they were like treated to like <laughs> you know beautiful like cell shaded sort of idealized versions of the graphics. And they always um, had a and, rainbow on them. Yeah. Like, there was yeah. always a trail rainbow off yeah. some object in the box art. Yeah. yeah. I think that was on one of their original logo treatments as well. And um, it got confusing, like something like 20 years later when Activision had another guy called David Crane working there at very similar senior position. But but I loved all those games. And, you know, there's a lot of companies that aren't with us anymore, like Exidy and uh, Bally and stuff like that. Yep, absolutely. Uh, so you grew up playing games. How did your attitude towards games change to where you thought you know what, I could actually maybe work in this industry. Um, A little bit just from reading old video game magazines. Mm -hmm. Um, There there were really primitive, um, this is like, I don't know if anyone's old enough to remember Omni and those sort of like tech futurist magazines, but there were, there were also some video game magazines. Some of them were really amateurish um, there. And I'm, you know, some of these were sort of UK exclusive, Mm -hmm. but when I was, I was, young teenager and started reading these really famous British games magazines like computer and video games, Zap 64, which was about Commodore 64. Um, Crash was about the, the Sinclair Spectrum, which was like a worse 8-bit computer, probably making somebody rage about that. And I, <laughs> they, they, that, the magazine company that made those company called Newsfield, and they started trying to make celebrities of their, their writers and um, again, you you know you mentioned earlier that I I was one of the first people to cross that sort of uh, um, journalist bridge to, line, to become yeah. a yeah. But actually, it was one of the first, and by no means the first either. A guy called Gary Lydon, um, he worked on Zap sixty four and a couple other magazines, um, along with sort of in their day legends like Julian Rignall, Jazz Rignall, he was called, and they made them personalities and they gave them little like uh, little cartoons of the the folks you'd see them um and they speak in this really irreverent you know like screw the man sort of tone (laughs) um and uh and they were just fun and they were like relatable and they they felt more like people you knew and that was you know those magazines blew up with that 
And the, the UK game scene was really quite varied and certainly compared to the US scene, which would kind of codify around one big system with a couple outliers. But the UK, especially the 8-bit uh, era, like there was BBC Micro, MSX, Spectrum, ZX81 was still going. The Oric Atmos wasn't, it was kind of a BBC, the Commodore 64, the Ataris, like they all kind of had a little bit of success. So you could kind of hop from machine to machine. I used to, that's one of the ways I used to get into different kinds of gaming was I would trade my, you know, slightly more desirable, but less powerful uh, 8-bit computer for more powerful, but less desirable one, like an MSX, for example. Nobody wanted an MSX in the UK, but I did because they had Konami games and cartridges. And so it was, so I did this sort of trade sideways thing. And, you know, that, that made me more, much more of a hobbyist, I think. And then by the time 16-bit rolled around, I was I was sort of into it. I had other interests like girls and school and stuff like that. But yep. yeah, that that was that that era of arcades, 8-bit consoles, 8-bit computers was where I was like really ex- excited and into it. And it was before I got a job in the industry as well. So okay, um, did you go to university or college in? The I did. UK? I, yeah, I went to a, a college in Edinburgh uh, called Napier. Um, and I did, um, I did the, fir- I think it was the first or the second year of their media studies degree. And it was really like the, you know, they were working through it. It was, it was a work in progress, um, but it was, it was really broad. So I went in to do media studies, but then in that you basically got to pick a career out of the things you were doing. Um, so it was like uh, broadcast, uh, broadcast radio uh, broadcast television, uh, advertising, really sort of quasi-related um, fields. Um, but you, the, the most valuable part for me was you could intern uh, basically most of the year, each year you were there. And uh, you, you could stay on. A lot of folks, like, you know, they, they graduated and then stayed with those companies. Um, but I did, uh, I did uh, a stint at a, an ad agency in the UK. That was the final, like, uh, the final internship I did was at a, a little ad agency, boutique ad agency in Edinburgh. But the first one I did was at a video TV commercial company called In Video Broadcast, making TV commercials. So it was immediately exciting because, like, I was the boom mic operator. Um, <laughs> I know that job the, very well. <laughs> I thought it was a super technical, awesome job. And it, it was in some ways, but it also just required that you had, like, you know, uh, caveman body proportions by the time really strong the forearms. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, keeping it steady, super high pressure work environment keeping it out of the shot. Yeah. Most importantly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, and not shaking it because the audio yep. engineer was like, I can hear you shaking. As, yep. uh, but that, that was, uh, that was the, the most compelling and useful aspect of that course. Cause I'd be learning like radio broadcast standards that were already defunct by the time we were learning them. So it wasn't in a practical sense that the academics of it were useful. Um, and they did in a weird roundabout way lead to my first job in the games industry. Cause when I graduated, you get a grant from the, the Scottish government, they, like education is free. If you meet certain criteria, it's actually great. Um, and uh, the, I got a grant for some of it was for like student housing, but some of it was for equipment that you need to do your, your, for both your internship and your first job. And uh, I got uh, an electric typewriter with a little LCD screen. There was technically a word processor. A word you could do processor, like one paragraph. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You do a paragraph, edit it, make sure you were happy with it, and then hit sort of enter and it print it out. But it was really just a typewriter with a big cache. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> that that is that thing 
um, who's a brother, um, that thing is directly why I got a job in the game industry because I was just looking for, you know, when you're a kid and you ask your mom, hey, what should I draw? And right. they never tell you because they're busy being a parent. Um, I, I was like, what should I write? And I was reading a, a computer magazine called New Computer Express. Um, and it had video game reviews at the back. It was really quite techy, sort of 16-bit era. Um, but they were great with news because it was weekly. So they had by far the most, used to have to wait a week for news. So it was really two weeks in real time. Um, and so I subscribed to that because that was the most current news. Um, and at the back, they had an ad for a staff writer position in there in Bath uh, in, in England. Um, staff writer, uh, barely need any qualifications. You just need to be a competent writer. Um, send us a sample game review of a recent game you played. So I wrote... I'm like, perfect, something I can write. I wrote a review of Strider and the Genesis or the Mega Drive, as we called it. Mm-hmm. And actually, technically, mine was a review of the arcade game because I didn't have the Genesis game, but you know, that was... <laughs> Gotta be crafty. Um, they, I don't think they cared one way or another. It wasn't, it's not like they were going to publish it, but the, um, I sent that in and uh, I, I, I kind of didn't, I didn't really think I was applying for the job. I just thought, like, I'll go through the whole process. I can format the address. Like, if it, actually, if I didn't have to format that address, and, and uh, sort of formulate a, a CV, a resume as well, um, I wouldn't have done it. Like it was just because right. I wanted to try out all the features on this typewriter. And um, I got a call two weeks later uh, saying, can you come down and interview? So like, I think it was like tomorrow or the day after. Um, and that was that. I'd been out of college, like uh, literally a month, something like that. And then straight to my first job in the industry as a staff writer. And that is magazine. a very rare. We've talked to a lot of people on yeah. this show and that is a very, very rare occurrence. Yeah. And, and I'm, you I'm know, I was, my first job out of college yeah. was working at GameSpot. Like, you know, again, yeah. just lucky had a really good guy, Joe Fielder there who yeah. you know, just was willing to talk to me about it and learn what my passions were and actually took the time to check right. out the website I had been publishing it. Right. Everything just has to kind of fall into place in a lot of those cases. I right. Think. And that's, you know, you know that now as, as both a manager and a sort of experienced like writer and editor, like what you're looking for is competent writing. You can, you can teach people about Oxford commas. You yep. can't teach them to be genuinely enthusiastic and knowledgeable in a broad sense. So that like, yep. when you bring in this kid, um, he's, you know, he's competent, he's literate and, uh, or, or she's like coded some games and you know what I mean? It doesn't matter yeah. what the thing is, but you recognize that passion is far more important in some ways than oh, yeah. um, a lot of academic qualifications. And it's a little bit different these days because I remember back when like DigiPen was first starting out, we were watching it see is this, you know, this is more for game development and journalism. Mm-hmm. Obviously they're like, is this going to be any good? Like, are they yeah, going to work there? Yeah. yeah. And now of course you don't even think twice. That's a great qualification nowadays. Yep. And their, you know, their, their curriculum and, and their academics are, are top notch. And there's mu- there's more and more and more, the, you know, the more mainstream colleges are starting to sort of catch up with that as well. So. USC here in LA has a huge yeah. program. Oh now my God. Yeah. Development. Yeah. yeah. So and, it's, it's and great they, to see. Yeah. And they bring, you know, USC is a good example of bringing, I think DigiPen has its own sort of legitimacy because it's so focused, but USC is another one where we see that in a resume. It's like, you know, don't, don't mean to crush anyone's dreams, but that's great if we see that in a resume. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But again, that's typically not what you're looking for. You're looking for all these other things that surround it. And those, those qualifications, um, none of those qualifications mean anything compared to content. Like if somebody supplies you, whether it's a game design like that they've got working in unity and you can play it and it's amazing. Or if it's, you know, a beautiful polished piece of writing, whatever that thing is, like qualifications are super useful and you got to get them. So stay in school, but 
content can can sort of uh, usurp any qualifications if it's amazing. Um, yeah. So if you're I mean, genuinely qualifications help you chop that. off like when you get 500 yeah. resumes. It helps right. you chop out like 400 of them. <laughs> right. Well, that's a, that's the other thing is like, I do wonder how many resumes we've missed over the years by having someone else gate them for you. Right. right. Where I didn't get to see the content because they didn't graduate with a, you know, a BA or they didn't, um, you know, have two years of prior experience doing this, whatever it is. Yeah. So do, I do always worry about that um, when, when we're interviewing, but our, you know, Microsoft recruiting folks have got it down to science. So they don't, they're not going to filter things out because they're not perfect. And they'll, they'll figure out what a combination of things could look like as well. So that's encouraging to hear. So eventually you became editor in chief of official Xbox magazine. And that's when I yeah. first discovered you. Um, I was a big admirer of your work, thought you did a great job as a journalist. Um, how did that come to be? How did you rise so quickly to become EIC at uh, Official Xbox Magazine? I, I'd been I'd been EIC on a couple of magazines. I you know they, they I'll, I'll be careful how I frame this, but I, I kind of always wanted to move to the states. Um, okay. It was like, but in a really primitive, dumb, like starry-eyed sort of way. Like I didn't hadn't you know been there a couple of times for for work, um, and I loved it. And but my idea of what America was like was really sort of media influenced. Yeah. And I, you know, I wasn't, you know, a, you know, a glassy eyed starlet, like it didn't, didn't understand America is also a real place and stuff, but I just, I loved it. And I wanted to move there and I had the sort of idealized vision of it. I still carry actually. I still, that's one of the things I love about being here is most of the things I wanted to be true are true. Right. So um, I was, I was working in the UK at, um, uh, future publishing, um, which back also then, that a was big my first, company. Yeah. yeah. And they, um, they had, they had a U.S. division and I was, you know, everyone at our company was trying to go work there. The mm -hmm. co only a couple of people did Neil West and a couple of other folks were already there. Um, my, Mike Salmon actually was there in the early days. Uh, he was the EIC of, um, official Xbox magazine before me. Um, and I, uh, I, you know, we, you know, we hopped from magazine to magazine, like a to keep them fresh and b kind of just rotate people promote people in the video game magazine industry in particular mm -hmm. i mean that's um, typical uh, of the magazine yeah, industry yeah, no matter absolutely. where you go yeah yeah and you're you know you're sometimes people will say hey you worked on next gen i'm like i didn't work on next gen they're like well here's a button oh yeah i used to write all this thing for next gen all the time in fact right. i wrote the i wrote the xbox column for next gen i always forget that because it's just it's just work. You're just, <laughs> it you know, all just blends together. The, the, yeah. <laughs> so you're, you're often doing more than one thing. And I got, um, I was waiting for my turn to go to America and work for future publishing. And they were in Brisbane, California, which is amazingly south of San Francisco and north of South San Francisco. <laughs> so you look it up on a map. Sure. Yeah. Um, and they, uh, they had a little office in a warehouse um, it, actually where, um, the car chase from Bullet ends. The Steve McQueen film where ex the explosion happens at the gas station. Wow, that's actually their old <laughs> office. Because um, uh, there's a great like straightaway that you can do donuts on. Um, so I I was trying to get a job there, and you know there were there were no slots open anyway, let alone like sort of visa um, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And then a company in in LA that I knew from their video game publishing magazines uh lfp uh they published that tips and tricks magazine which i loved um chris Bianyak and those guys are amazing and uh the one of the editors there um offered me a job i'm like well what kind of job well you know what's 
what is your visa situation? What's the salary going to be? Blah, 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 blah. And uh, I went there to with the, the intention of launching this big glossy like next gen competitor. Um, I, everyone there was so lovely that I'm not going to say anything bad about anybody there. Like I was a little bit naive about what what I was being promised necessarily, mm-hmm. but even more naive, I didn't know that LFP stood for Larry Flint Publications <laughs> until I until I started and I got into the lobby and it's like. Uh, marble floor, Greek statues of nymphets. And I'm like, it's a little bit weird. And then I looked at all the people waiting in the lobby with me and they were, it was an interesting set of, you know, like I, I have another and, friend who works there. You may yeah. even know her. Do you know Abby Heppy? I know that name. She, so I think she's she now the me, community but, manager yeah. for uh, Media Mo- Molecule on yeah. Dreams. But yeah. she worked at LFP. Yeah. And you're, you're aware because aware, you worked in the industry, yeah. how you constantly have... PR people, developers coming to see you right. to demo games. And then yeah. you record footage, you do an interview with them, and then yeah. they go to the next publication. Well, those people would have to come to Larry Flint's building and sit in the lobby with these right. crazy, hardcore yeah. porn mags all yeah. over the coffee table. Yeah. And then have to go in and do this very serious interview yeah. or demo for this game. She yeah. just said it was very awkward and... Yeah. Yeah. I think for I th- actually think for a lot of people it was kind of exciting. It was this weird, <laughs> risky thing they were going to do in their day job. Yeah. But I was I was one of those people on my first day in the in the office, and right away I was like, oh, I haven't been fully briefed, <laughs> <laughs> right? So I I didn't I didn't spend I didn't spend that long enough. I loved LA by the way, and I loved I actually loved everyone I worked with. There's a lot of like really good journalists came out of there weirdly enough because a lot of people were going there to do something different and yeah. went on to write screenplays or went on to write uh like much more uh, traditional stuff but it just i'm not prudish but like they it wasn't just nude people monthly or sexual activity monthly there were like really odd Hardcore. things and it was yeah and, yep. and it was you know i, I think i could have i could have lived with it ethically if it just wasn't in your face because there were loads of people there who didn't have anything to do with that including me you yeah. you're you know once you're out of the lobby you're kind of siloed away and you would have no idea that it was that that kind of publishing but we were there when they filmed a movie people were says larry wow. i i found an actor asleep in my office one day that was that was <laughs> exciting um, that's funny she was famous more famous for singing than acting anyway um it was it was exciting um, but as soon as uh, Future offered me a job in uh, Brisbane, I, I jumped at the chance. So, uh, yeah, and moved north to San Francisco. Do miss L.A., still like going back there and luckily get to in my job and uh, worked on a couple of magazines there and ended up on official Xbox magazine and with Mike Salmon and those guys. Yeah, you guys did. You had a great run there, by the way. I thought you guys did an excellent job, especially for an, an official magazine related to a specific platform. I thought you yeah. guys really I, called it down I, the middle. Um, yeah, you look at Nintendo Power or PlayStation Magazine. Yeah. The reviews generally were, were inflated. I felt like you guys did a really yeah. good job, though. Of it, was, your it was funny integrity. Though, because I think we were great at um, staying out of um, like the, the idea that we're giving things, you know, big scores because it's, it's Microsoft. And that was part of the original agreement was like, hey, you guys want the magazine to be authentic, right? So you can't control our editorial, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we would, you know, obviously, just as you do if you're writing a big story now, depending on the type of story, sometimes we'd have to run things by them, like, hey, we're going to be talking about, you told us this feature wasn't quite finalized, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But they never touch scores or, or even editorial. I think the only 
we the only time I ever got into a spat like that with with any publisher wasn't Microsoft actually at, at the time it was another big publisher where they had a really weird really weird reaction of like a just a mildly negative it wasn't even review it was like a preview that pointed out some failing with the game and that was the last it but never with Microsoft. <laughs> to all were, of us. You know, we did. We benefited from it because we got to put a playable game disc on the front cover every month. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were huge. We had huge benefits and advantages. But as a result of that that process, it took longer to make the magazine than it would a traditional one. Mm-hmm. And so we, you know, we weren't always scooping people, right? And uh, I remember we did uh, we did a, a preview of Brute Force, and like uh, that, I I wrote the the headline for this, but people still stopped me and. E3 and like attack me about it. Like you said, brute force was going to be a halo killer. How ironic. And I'm like, yeah, but like if we had been on, you know, uh, diehard game fan or any other magazine, we'd have written the exact same headline because yeah. we wanted you to open it and read it and decide, yeah. you know, this is, this is BS. It's not a halo killer. Right. Great. You, you He's had all the tools the you needed to. Yeah. <laughs> so, but, but yeah, it's funny how uh, folks think about those times that the, uh, it's um it seems distant to me now but i always you know it's it's like when you're an adult you feel like you're a kid for much longer than you really are yeah. and i felt like i was a game journalist for longer than i really was as well and now like i i'd be out of my league now like you know we were before we started this we were talking about like um famous game journalists and they're just the reporting that's going on now just because there's so much more information and access and stuff it's just better they just have more stuff mm-hmm. and they the media that they can apply to a story, you know, apart from like proper high grade photography. Uh, but the fact that you can show a 20 minute movie of a game now, instead of just writing reams and reams of impressions, just completely changes things up and, and serious reporting like the Jason Triers of this world, like, you know, reporting on real things. And that was what stories, next gen yeah. did uh, back in the day and edge at future publishing. They yeah. were, they were sister magazines, obviously. Yep. Um, and then at the end of 2004, everything changed for you. You became yeah. a writer and community manager at Bungie on the Halo franchise. How yeah. did that happen? I, I started in December 2003. I, I know that because uh, I keep having to put it on a form somewhere and I can't remember what it is. <laughs> um, and um, the, it happened because... I was working, obviously working with a lot of Xbox folks just on stories. And actually, like if I'd been on Next Gen, um, I was on the official Xbox magazine, but if I'd been on Next Gen doing the Xbox beat, which I was actually, I keep having to remind myself, um, I'd have had the same kind of context. But I remember I'd, you know, I'd interview from time to time, but also talk with Pete Parsons um, a lot back in the day. Um, and uh, he was my Spengali um I, I don't think people use that term anymore. But yeah. like, no, he was he was he was just a he was just a fun guy, and we we just talked even when we weren't working on something. And I I kind of liked his. Um, he actually came from a publishing background as well. He worked on uh, and a, a similar to mine, but without the tanginess. He worked on like muscle fitness type magazines, yeah. a sort of wider. Um, and you know, Pete is pretty he's pretty beefy dude. Yeah. Like he could he could destroy me in an arm wrestling match, but um. <laughs> He was, uh, you know, they were, they were getting ready to, to the, they were getting ready to start closing down the production of Halo 2 at this time. This was after Halo 1, they were already huge. Um, and this was kind of before we knew that Xbox Live was going to be a behemoth, Xbox mm-hmm. Live. It was announced, I think it was even out, um, and, um, but the, they didn't have a killer app yet. They had um, Mech Assault, and mm-hmm. I still never got 
credit for any kills I ever did in Mechasaur. Just go kill skills <laughs> nonstop. Um, but I, I killed most of those guys. There were just weren't rich stats to prove it. Um, yep. But Pete was, um, as they were going into, um, and I'm saying Pete, but also Brian Gerard, um, he was doing the, the, the bulk of that work um, there, but it was just bigger and bigger and bigger. So Brian had to kind of, he had to grow his role. And so they needed someone who was just much more focused on writing and sort of day-to-day community. So I was in EIC. Um, it wasn't, I don't think it was a step down, but if you just look at your sort of job role and responsibilities mm-hmm. or management tree, it would look like kind of a step down, but it was what, by this point, all I wanted to do was work on the games. And um, I love writing about them, but the, the so much was happening in the sort of space of invention and, um, and, you know, novel, surprising, big changes and how games, it took me back to when arcades were a thing again, Mm -hmm. where I would go into the arcade and every month or two, there'd be a real surprise. It might be polygons in hard driving or, or, um, you know, motion um, simulations in space area, whatever it is, it was always something new and amazing. Like I'm old enough that it was like, you know, color vector graphics and stuff yeah. like that. But mm-hmm. but I love that the the newness of it. So like I'm not an inventor, um, but you know, I love writing and I love being in the 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 sort of thick of that that um innovation sort of environment. So they just needed someone to be the, the community manager, writer, um, and there were other writing first tasks. ever community manager in no, the no, Brian, no, Brian Gerard already was a successful and popular and uh and widely threatened community manager before I was. <laughs> That's um, kind of I the was, badge of success, though, isn't it? Yeah. How many threats you get? <laughs> yeah, and the um, and how well you wear them. But the um, they, <laughs> there were there were I think there were a couple, but I think to me Brian Gerard was the the sort of gold standard of that. Um, but there was I think um, Blizzard. Now every had, franchise has yeah. one. Yeah, yeah, no, but Blizzard back then I think did as well. It maybe maybe wasn't called that then. And, but it, I certainly wasn't the first, not by any You're the first one I remember. Team. I'll put it to you right. that way. Yeah. Uh, I was the first one to be arrested on national TV. <laughs> um, the, um, but Brian was, to me, he was the kind of model for it. Um, and I took over his kind of old job as he sort of moved in and doing more, um, much more marketing stuff because Halo had blown up so big that they didn't have a good sort of conduit between the game team and the, the marketing. Mm-hmm. There wasn't like a big distraction or a conflict of interest or any of that stuff. So Brian ended up doing more of that. And he was still running the community and web teams as well. Um, and their web team was growing as well. And then there was this amazing thing happened with Halo 2 where the web team and the game team really converged. So I did a little bit of like writing, you know, a combat dialogue and every, it was all hands on deck um for you that actually worked um, on the game yeah a, a little bit i mean yeah. i could i could find it nobody else could but, yeah. but um but <laughs> did i did you get a the, credit um, yeah 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 if you're working on the game you're working on the game and that that's that's um pretty standard now but the oh, there's um, lots of people who get left out of credits who work on games for sure you have to have like a really alphabetically uh, striking name like aaron Ardvark or something <laughs> like that, and that can be, you can find out quicker at least yeah. um but um i did uh, i worked on the uh, p actually had an idea i don't remember how much of it was forming his head but he's like we we got to do something big with the manual for this game because back in the day you used to get instructions on how to do a thing 
um, in the box. Mm-hmm. Um, and our manuals back then were, you know, they were part of the collection experience, right? They were glossy, yeah. like games would be, it'd be mentioned in every review uh, for better or worse. It was the instruction manual. manual. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we, we did uh, Halo 2. We had a couple of versions with like the steel box, like collectible thing. Steel box is a real word. I always misappropriate, but we had a metal box um, and there was a regular edition. And so we, Pete wanted to do something special with the, the manual and uh, either either he suggested it or I suggested it or I riffed off of something that he had said. And uh, we, because we had two editions, like I'm an extremely sophisticated thinker. And I was like, we should have two manuals and they should both be different. Right. And uh, that was, <laughs> but um, they, we decided to do one manual from the UNSC perspective, which um, was kind of how Halo presents this fiction. Like everything's mm-hmm. from the sort of Marine space Marine perspective um, and uh, one from the covenant perspective. And uh, so I did that. So you're still writing a real instruction manual, mm-hmm. but then just phrasing the same instructions in, and it's easy when it's like the story intro, right? Because you're like, okay, you, now you do it. And they're like angry space space monster tone. Right. Um, but we we tried to make them sympathetic as well because of a twist that happens in the game later. Um, and uh, we uh, like that was that was that takes a long time. So I don't know how much of it was work versus how much of it was just duration. Um, but it was uh, it it did it did feel special. And we actually got plaudits for that. Uh, somebody reviewed it. And uh, uh, did a, I think it was Slate or someone like that, and they talked about the the politics of it being kind of nuts. Um, but the uh, yeah, that that was fun, and then you know that was an example to me because I'm still a new employee at this point. It was an example of how different things were, just because the scale of Halo, but also because that web team and that community team was now directly involved in game features. So um, there's so many folks there um, doing amazing stuff. Um, that is fundamental to how you think about Halo gameplay, but also multiplayer all up. So, you know, there was um, folks like Max Holberman, Damian Isla, um, Rog, too, too many folks to name. Um, Tom and Roger, especially on how the, the web stats would then interface with the game stats. But most of that um, stuff was coming from Max Holberman and his team. Um, Max wanted to use the population to make the game better, um, to make matchmaking faster. They also wanted to use the skill ranking system that they were working on to make it so that each game was a nail biter. Because mm-hmm. we were land games with Halo were huge and you thought about them like uh like you were watching this the sort of NFL Sunday rosters like oh my God, the Patriots are gonna stomp on whoever the brands typically um but the um, i'm a steelers fan so i'm glad yeah. that when you were looking for a bad team the first team that came to your mind yeah. is the cleveland browns i went i went to the one i had the most sympathy for um but the um he uh max wanted it to be because the the stories that you tell about your gameplay experience are in those lands because you'd be you know driving across town with five CRTs and five Xboxes and miles of cabling to do this. There's so much effort involved that your stories from those gameplay experiences were only ever about the close or crazy games. And he wanted to take that aspect. um, And he, I think he called it like the virtual couch. um, And he wanted it to be so that we had gone into a LAN and set the best teams up against the best teams based on the, the qualifications of even individual players. Like it's not always perfect, 
And we were lucky that Halo was guaranteed a huge audience um, mm-hmm. and a huge Xbox Live participation. So it worked. Um, but he set up a bunch of systems for matchmaking, skill ranking, progress, um, achievements, and so on and so on and so on that probably existed in loads of other games, but I had never seen them all put in one place. And it's certainly not in broadband on a console. Right. And I remember, you know, we went to the, the opening event for Halo 2 in downtown Redmond. And we, we were there, you know, signing things and handing out pizza, whatever we were doing. But everyone wanted to get back because we didn't know if it was going to work, right? Because <laughs> you're just turning all the servers on out. as like, is this going to work? And we couldn't test at the scale we do now. Yeah. Um, it was just, it was just impossible. And, and Max, of course, was right. And I keep saying it was I'm brand new. Every time I name a single edge person, at the yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it was, it was brilliant. And I remember that, that one in particular, Max, Max's, um, input always always stuck out to me because it was a great example of a thing in video games that is really hard to codify which is a designer has an idea and it is a thing that can't adequately be described you can look at you know max documents everything so you could actually look it on paper and see how sort of uh, elaborate and brilliant it all was but you couldn't know if it was a good idea or not until it was you know, really out there in the field, which is what one yeah. of the great things about right now is you can beta test things and you can do all this stuff um, and really, you know, sort of test things out in the field in a way that you couldn't back in the day. But um, now you'd have to think about leaks, right? right? Somebody yeah. uploading an hour yeah. of Halo Infinite to YouTube and... <laughs> or, uh, yeah, an hour of Halo 4 multiplayer on uh, set in a barn uh, to the Cotton Eye Joe uh, music, <laughs> uh, apparently by Tom Morello, was one of my favorite <laughs> leaks. And it was such a ridiculous leak. This is a fuzzy YouTube. You can probably find it with those search terms. Um, it was such a ridiculous leak that people thought it wasn't real. Right. <laughs> but it's completely real. <laughs> but yeah, that, that night at, the, at launch, it was way past midnight, like 2 a.m., people still lining up to get their game at GameStop. We just wanted to get back to make yeah. sure all the lights were on and the thing was functioning. And not knowing if it was fun, right? Right. Which is a huge part of that. Absolutely. What, if anything, about being a journalist helped or hurt you when you moved over to development? Um, you know, I think I moved over to development at the right time to be useful because, again, the you know, the, the idea of an extended community, um, the idea of the sort of borders between being a dev and being the community and the of course, being a journalist, that's actually an interface between community and game dev. So I think if I, you know, if I had done this today, I just wouldn't be qualified, right? Mm-hmm. It would be it would be a really different um, a different set of skills that was needed. And still we do seems to be happening a good bit, hiring. though. Seems like yeah. still a lot of community managers end up moving over to the development side, right? And but you know, but the um, I think but the that job is sort of settled now settled law like mm-hmm. people know what they're doing i think the um you know even being a print and web journalist was a pretty different skill it wasn't just yeah. writing uh, the the folks that really took off i think you know like if, if we all had uh if we all had a, a crystal ball then you know being able to do that and become a youtuber right mm-hmm. that just own your own whole trajectory and actually make money doing it and you've got you know, uh, lots of big success stories there. But again, a lot of the big YouTubers weren't necessarily popular in the traditional gaming. There certainly were examples like Giant Bomb and stuff where it was like gaming, 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 blew up big and had mm-hmm. their own thing. But, you know, there, there are plenty of 
uh, just fresh faces in that in that YouTube scene where they can show you the game, talk about it, play it with you, experience it all, and just kind of do that sort of soup to nuts um, experience. But mine was about being an interface between fans and and the game in a very literal sense because of Xbox Live and, and online gaming. Um, and you know, like I'd be, I definitely when I first started at Bungie was like a test mule for ideas whether or not i was smart or not but you know people would run things by me because they felt like i was connected to some part of it that they weren't mm. but um, my my main skill was writing typing um and i got i was lucky because i get to sort of segue that into storytelling mm-hmm. proper and again writing that manual was you know it's not exactly a novel but it was it was obviously directly related to what I, what that is so okay and then in mid 2008 you sort of had your day of career reckoning um, mm-hmm. you're basically, you had to decide whether to stay at Bungie, uh, the studio mm-hmm. that kind of gave yeah. you your start and you had grown up in, or move along with the Halo franchise to yeah. 343 Industries. Um, what was that decision like and how did you ultimately come to a decision? Yeah. It was really tough. And, um, and you know, it's not necessarily very visible in the, uh, in the sort of online sphere as you're tracking it. So I might tell you something here that's, is a new detail, but I actually did move with Bungie. Um, uh, the Brian and I, Brian Gerard and I, were we were involved quite early in the spin-out um, discussions. Um, again, through that sort of interface between you know uh, between PR and marketing, the game team proper, the fans, and so on. So we were you know we were there to help with how do we communicate this to the team? Like, how do we get feedback? How do we, you know, cause it wasn't necessarily just some star chamber saying we're taking the company off. Like they needed, they needed the whole studio to go along. There's a lot of things I just can't, I just probably could talk about, but not hundred percent sure what, when, when that's safe or not, but it was, um, we were involved in it way earlier than I think a bulk of people knew. So there was a lot of discussion about it and a lot of rumbling, but when it really started to take shape, um, it got obviously got very serious. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that, it, and I know that Bungie didn't communicate this at all, but I think one of the things that came from being passive about communication in that period is there was a lot of, you know, why did this happen and whose idea was it and, you know, who's divorcing who. And um, I think that there was, there was, uh, Microsoft was seen as a villain for, for a few of those. But from our perspective, like Microsoft was 100% enabling this and once it was once the the topic was broached microsoft had to go along with it because microsoft owned the ip and the mm-hmm. and the studio building and the, the everything so right. it was um it had to be an it had to be an agreement um sorry i'm hanging up on a, a call even though this has got call blocking microsoft had to go along with this right and i'm sure some people had a smaller appetite for this than others, but I think there were a lot of people at Microsoft said, we got such an amazing thing out of Bungie and Xbox Live all up and everything um, that we uh, we have to be serious about their, their desire to go take this um, back to their, you know, a lot of it was about going back to our roots. Like, right. you know, we're too big now. Like, have we lost anything in that? And it was about, you know, shrinking in a sense, even though the studio get, got bigger and bigger every day. Um, I, by this point, was just enamored by Halo. Like, that was my job. I loved it. I loved every single thing about it. Um, but the the studio wanted to kind of go away 
do something original. I think Microsoft probably would have come around to letting them. In fact, there was there was one thing which Microsoft's forcing them to make Halo games. Well, that actually wasn't true. Like you know, Bungie could have made um, what Destiny was going to be with with Microsoft as well. It just mm-hmm. would have been they just wouldn't have been in, in control of their own destiny. It's not coincidence the game is called that. That's a you know that's a word that was being batted around a lot. Um, but the game at the time when I made that decision was very different. It was um it would you know it was much more it's much more RPG, less action and way less sci-fi um there is it initially started as kind of a a sort of myths and monsters dungeons and dragons atmosphere with some really things that are very apparent in um in the uh the the game that they shipped like i recognize it but if you'd seen some of those original documents about what it was going to be um words like bard and uh soothsayer and dragon might have been appropriate so but it was a fantasy game yeah. at first it, it it was certainly it was heading in that direction in a way but again it was about game systems and community and again the things that destiny really is um and also about i think probably trying to create a, a shift in tone from halo so it didn't look like you were doing another halo um but it was really the gameplay systems that were and and lore like i know it sounds mm-hmm. strange to say that it wasn't that lore it's this lore but bungie is really about building sort of layered um sort of mysterious and deep and eventually rich um lore as you sort of dig through it um and but i wasn't that story i was it wasn't that i wasn't interested in that story i was just really interested in what where halo was going because we'd just done reach i mean same we'd done reach we're still shipping reach mm-hmm. um and i'd gotten to write the, the first draft of the screenplay for reach and so i was super invested in those characters oh, yeah. in that world and i had done a lot of setup for things i wanted to see in the return of master chief sort of stuff yep. um and and did things like that in the halo 3 terminals and there was a lot of setup that we'd set up and i wanted to see it to to some sort of conclusion so we 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 left microsoft we spun out as our own company and i was a bungie llc employee for um i can't remember but like two or three months in fact i had to like when when i when i did finally go back to microsoft i had to like arrange so that i had uh um uninterrupted tenure at microsoft it was wow. like by this time i knew that and we obviously had to work out with pete parsons and all those guys mm-hmm. but it was um it was largely because yeah i would have gone and stayed with bungie and that was where my um sort of um loyalty was in terms of the company but um bonnie ross who i'd worked with a bunch over the years and kiki wolf and dave burger a bunch of people that are still there in the leadership team i was part of the team res- responsible for handing off the keys to the to the kingdom so the story bible um you know bits of story thread that we had and bonnie wasn't saying give me all the stuff we're going to go away and make it she's like well what what were you guys going to do like well it was really important to her that whatever they did um was a continuation of what was organic and natural for it and that's how that was the thing that i was drawn to it was like oh wow this this person actually cares and it, like if you know bonnie ross like you would you would always kind of know that, but mm-hmm. it was really apparent because she thought I was gone and was trying to get the best of Bungie, um, you know, not just code or engine components, but like the spirit of the thing. Right. And so the the I w- ended up doing little bits of what I ended up doing as a full-time job while I was in that handoff period. And then eventually someone who's not there anymore said, would, would you even consider 
coming back. And, uh, I, I, you know, I think I said no on the spot because, but then I went away and thought about it. And I think my wife talked me into it. She's like, well, you really like Halo. And you said you didn't care about this one. Like I'd be talking about a specific character or thread or something like mm-hmm. that. She's like, that's not your thing. And um, I said, but it is because I really like uh, Gene Wolfe. And, uh, right. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, and it, it was just realizing that they were serious about it and that they were going to take the time to to build it um, and do it justice was was what what made me decide to stay at Microsoft. So, but I didn't really stay at Microsoft. I kind of jumped and then jumped back. So technically, you didn't. But you yeah, didn't. <laughs> the, and of course, the hardest part was all these folks that you know my all, my my friends and my best friends were there, and it was just really tough. Mm-hmm. And it was a little bit of you know, there's still like even now, there's still like a little bit of like intramural. You you guys are the bad guys. I'm like, no. Remember, we just said that because we were trying to make marketing seem like the villain all the time. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so and and of course, I still see those guys. So then hang out with them all the time. So it, there there is no real real shit in that sense. But yeah, but it did it it was it was very ideal for me. Uh, but again, I think I was just in the right place at the right time. I don't think any other month even would have had me commit to that decision. Um, and so you went to 343 Industries. You're now the franchise creative director for yep. Halo at 343. Yep. What exactly does that mean, Frank? Um, t- today it means uh, this, uh, this interview. Um, but I run the, the franchise team. Like We're tasked with making the franchise function throughout game, media, toys, board games, jigsaw puzzle, like that sort of like there's That's tedious a fun job you've got there, buddy. Some of some of it is. Some of it is just nightmarish, like uh, cease and desists, and right. Um, you'd be amazed how many people use our IP with mm-hmm. with our permission. Yeah. Um, and the uh, so some of it's that tedious stuff, but the, I think the exciting stuff I get to do is like help craft the next stories and, uh, and help craft the the overall arc of the universe. If you think about it, like the I hate saying this. It's like the MCU, it only like much smaller scale, and mm-hmm. we we're not we haven't done all of those things yet. But the, our universe is built to be that way, to be extensible across uh, different, not just different projects, but different avenues of story. And that was always my big challenge: is can we tell a story about ODSTs? Can we tell a story about the the fall of Reach that doesn't have Master Chief in it, and so mm-hmm. on? So right now, working on a little bit of game stuff as they're, as we're getting close to ship, there's a bunch of sort of content that still needs to be done. Um, and the TV show with Showtime. Yeah. Um, that is, we got paused for COVID like everyone else. Yeah. Um, production shut down. Production started up again at the start of the year, but slowed down through COVID. Um, the, uh, that is a huge time uh, outside of the get outside of the, fps which is always our number one priority and biggest single time time suck right now is the show and it's a lot of what we do in the game as well is um providing story and background for things and a lot of yeah but there's also a lot of approvals and you know like screens and screens and screens of gak on spaceship monitors that mm-hmm. has to be doesn't always have to do something usually does we usually make it do something um but it has to be correct uh, within the the confines of reasonable um, uh, reasonable feasibility, but, um, the fans are going it, to go through that stuff with a fine tooth right. comb. Yeah, right. you well, know. That, I mean, they. I mean, I can't talk too much about this show story, but we're obviously 
involved in that from start to finish. Um, Kiki Wolfkill is out in, she's in Budapest now as EP being our boots on the ground, along with one of my guys, Kenneth Peters. He's a, a former Marine, but he's a story lore uh, Bible nerd. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's out there in the field. And he, you know, like, I think when we designed that, that task, it was obviously a big, a lot of work. We figured you'll probably be doing like six hours of that a day and you only have two hours for your regular job and you'll be online. It's vast. It's yeah. the, the scale of the production it. is enormous. And so it's, um, it's nonstop. And he still has to do, he has to do all that in the rain uh, or in COVID <laughs> lockdown in yeah. Hungary. But he also, you know, everyone is all hands on deck for the game the whole time as well. So. Yeah, um, that that was the I think the hardest part of COVID for us was those two things overlapping, and even with delays like that, overlap got worse and worse. Gotcha. Um, what is it like being the conduit for fans for one of the industry's biggest franchises? Because look, there are community managers and sort of middle people between the fans and games for every game, but not every game is Halo. What is it like right. doing that job? Um, you know, I, I kind of look at the way other, other games handle this stuff. Um, and you know, sometimes we'll do crossovers with, um, like we did a thing with Fortnite, Mm -hmm. um, recently that that's another, like we, our team handles all of those kinds of things. Um, um, and I watched this, this scale of those things because we're, you know, we're, we're a big game and we're a big AAA game and we will be in even bigger, like weirdly, well, it's weird to me because I'm used to this sort of lull on season, big, big build up to launch a game and then lull. And, but it mm-hmm. hasn't really been that way, but also because MCC came out on PC, um, the, you know, we've actually, we're actually growing our audience um, even in the off period. So, but looking at the way that they've handled scale and the way that they've turned, uh, this is Fortnite again, the way that they've turned the game into um, a, kind of a venue for other things that aren't just the game. Um, Roblox does this too. Mm-hmm. Um, Minecraft does this as well. Mm-hmm. It, it ha- that, that aspect of this has actually helped me understand games um, as a different medium, like another, another shift from when they became sort of online um, competitive or multiplayer. But also I finally understand what it is that my kid, because my kid has always played these games and they're ones that I wasn't interested in, like I'm an FPS gamer. So Fortnite was a moment where we kind of connected mm-hmm. and I like tooling around in Minecraft, but I don't go do the Minecraft things. Mm-hmm. But my kid does, she's 12 and she's always played those games because they were social gel for, for her and her friends. Creative. And, COVID. Yeah. Right. And you, you add that to COVID it's there. It's become this super valuable, um, place for them to go be with their peers and their friends and their enemies too yeah um that, that but it's still healthy and constructive like she my kid when she's she's staying up past her bedtime invariably building something yeah. right and that's you know arguably more productive than sleep what i would have <laughs> done admit it, but... with my coleco vision like i'm just <laughs> killing donkey going again for the 50th time in a row yeah that's true but what is it like more of the interaction with the fans directly yeah. uh i think anyone who's ever kind of put themselves out there has had to deal with sort of yeah. the online mobs the vocal minority how did you kind of train yeah. yourself to deal with that whole we, landscape I, I mean i don't want to speak for brian gerard but i think brian and i we've been through such a similar sort of time period and experience that it's, 
you know, we joke about like death threats and that stuff happens. And I mean, that's just a Do you think it's strange that we joke life. about that? Because as a journalist, I've no, received death no, threats. No, it's not funny. Do you think it's crazy you know, that we've kind of normalized it to the point where we just joke about it now? We're yeah. like, oh, I've had 25 um, death threats. I've had a thousand. It's, like, it's not okay. And, and uh, the, you know, there's things I can do. There's, there's things we can do with our games and with our, with our actions that can help make better citizens. You know, I was talking to an audio guy the other day about the ethics of making a multiplayer character say something that the kid didn't want to. Like, kid may have wanted to say something stupid and racist and mean. The multiplayer AI makes him say something useful and helpful. Right? So <laughs> awesome. we do have tools. We have tools, right? We can make people better citizens in a sense. <laughs> that would but, be great. But we knew from we knew from the go that, that there's a difference between a kid in a rage acting out in the heat of the moment and a serious threat that you have to take, mm-hmm. take seriously. I think, um, but you, you also have to know how to filter it out. And I, I get that some people just, nobody should be expected to have to do that. But I think Brian and I have been through the wars long enough to know, firstly, know the difference between real and, and, you know, fake or angry or, or whatever. But we, I think the only good thing that comes of those negative experiences is understanding things that we can do to make it easier for folks who are in those trenches now, like for our community team, and they don't have to be exposed to that. Um, I, I give people, you know, I have to give them sensible advice first and foremost. Like, you know, if you see something scary online, you know, examine it and make sure that you're yeah. not making light of something that could be serious. Um, but I also you know, I'll share my experience like nine, 99 times out of a hundred. They didn't think anything of that. They weren't thinking about you as a person or acting out anything just how they talk, for example. Um, but, you know, the, I do, I do think that we have responsibility with, um, with kids where things, things that can be affected or impacted by peer pressure. Um, I'm just talking about the constructive part where you're in room building a house together. That's great. Um, somebody told me that you know you can't make someone racist they're either racist or they're not i beg to differ you can make a teenager (laughs) you can make a teenager a racist in two minutes of peer pressure from his friends like whether or not he really is 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 a racist but if his cool racist friend says something racist and gets a reaction that's all it takes so Mm -hmm. we have a responsibility to try and deal with that sort of online negativity with whatever tools we we can we can provide or whatever you know, sometimes it's just going to be imperatives or, or impetus to make people behave better for good reasons for them. It might be selfish. Uh, my real experience, though, after 20 years of, you know, I'm going on for 17 years of working on Halo, my real experience is that the vast majority of our community are constructive, great, awesome, creative people. And that's how I think you get to carry the burden of the odd, um, the odd serious negative um, thing. But again, I'm lucky, like I'm a white middle-aged man mm-hmm. and, you know, the, the level of um, invective that gets thrown at people of color, women, anyone who's different than, than uh, somebody else. Um, and it doesn't always have to be that sort of white privilege. There, there are plenty of like inversions of that that can happen, but nobody should have to go through that. And we try and do what we can um, to to make our games and safe, well-lighted place for everyone, including our studio, so that the people working there feel safe. And I see things online um, happening to other studios and other people that I just, you know, you can relate, but you just wish um, 
that those that wasn't the sort of spastic reaction of certain types of folk. Social media there, certainly you know, easier helps tools to just... engender that behavior yeah. as well. Yeah, the immediacy absolutely. of it and the yeah. access. I mean, yeah. back when we started in the industry, you couldn't reach out to someone like you right. <laughs> unless you had your phone number or your email address. There was no way. Which to... they did get sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> the really crafty yeah. ones. Yep. Yeah. I definitely yeah. got a few calls from the switchboard at uh, MTV for people looking for me after I wrote a review right. that people didn't agree with. So they, yeah. there are people who, and those are the ones you got to look out for. The people who yeah. go that far, that's when the red flags need to go up, I believe. Yeah. Um, you, again, it, 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 the negative it's, you know, it's like a poop in a swimming pool, right? It's a tiny, tiny fleeting percentage of the volume of water, mm -hmm. but you can't, now the whole pool looks like that. You're like, I'm not going <laughs> in the pool until they get that. And it may be a payday. In fact, that's the other thing. It that's is a always analogy. a payday bar, right? And yeah. you, you scoop it out and the water's perfectly fine. Um, yeah. But the, um, but it's scooping it out and, and, and noticing it is important. And we, you know, as parents, as developers, as publishers, like we, we aren't responsible for it, but we have to be responsible for it. And yeah. that's, you know, a, an amazing amount of work in this industry goes towards that, towards trying to make places better and make people better um, without, you know, working their, their behaviors or beliefs, like give them tools to be better is the way to go about it. Who ultimately decides what will or will not appear in any given Halo game? Is that your job? I mean, it can be. Yeah. I mean, if, there, if, if something shows up in our game and it has done from time to time where, um, where I, I mean, I've never vetoed anything that other people didn't agree with first, mm -hmm. like I never get to do this as wholly subjective level. I could, but the, um, but my, I try to work with our, our narrative and writer team early on so that we, everyone knows what we're building. Like, and if somebody, you know, puts in something, you know, if somebody puts in something offensive by accident, that just gets taken out as part of what we call G-Ops, um, where we just check the game for, oh, that flag upside down is super rude in one country, that sort of stuff. Right. But for story stuff, for, you know, um, uh, you know, the we have some weird things with Halo specifically, like Cortana becoming more and more sexualized through fidelity, mm -hmm. but not anything else. Like just the higher resolution you made Cortana, the odder that that original sprite highly polygonal like very primitive sprite like the more organic she becomes the weirder it becomes so we have to t tune the the those sorts of things those are kinds of things it's also just an ai are. yeah <laughs> right but those are, those are the like controversial things they shouldn't be controversial at all but they can be um storytelling we we map that out so early in the process that you where you really get to friction is when execution happens and the odd line of dialogue comes off feeling like really wrong or to put the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable. Right. And, right. Um, but ultimately it would, could be, you know, like weirdly, I think Bonnie obviously would, would have, you know, ultimate veto power, but she trusts creative people to make creative decisions. Mm -hmm. Theoretically, Phil, Phil Spencer could, but I've yeah. never once seen Phil interject in a game, uh, before shipping like in in that sort of creative sense it comes to play tests and stuff and he might say that oh, can you make the pistol have the same the graphics on level four yeah. <laughs> yeah but that's the other thing phil knows game development right so you don't, yeah we, and he knows we games don't really have well. any and we don't have any executives who are this sort of hollywood joke of an executive right the, mm -hmm. the, um so it's such a 
collaborative process that there isn't any one. I do feel guilty sometimes where we're like, like the franchise police because, you know, it's some tedious granular thing like, no, they, they would never salute like that because they're Marines, that sort of thing. But for the big ticket stuff, it's, um, it's a collaboration. So everyone can object. And, you know, we've had team members say, hey, that's actually pretty insensitive and we just didn't know. And you're like, oh, yeah, man, that is, you're right. That flag is upside down. Um, gotcha. So the, there's no there's no single figure who does that. Um, Joe Staten right now because he's EPing out the door and has worked on Halo Creative for so long. He'll absolutely be doing the sort of balls and strikes of that right now. But um, a large team gets to make those decisions, and and that same large team then has to be happy with them and the end result. So and responsible okay. for it. How would you characterize the reception of the new Halo games from 343 versus the reception that the Bungie games got? Yeah, it's so I think this is probably true of any um, any sort of shift in creator um, or apparent shift in creator. The the because I was there um, across spanning across those things and sometimes making decisions on the same things that then were criticized as that's a three four three thing and that's a bungee thing. Mm-hmm. I know that a lot of that is, you know, purely it's categorization, subjective categorization. Right. Some of it is real, of course, because when you shift a team that that radically, um, you're going to see differences in creative output and vision. But you know, the engine um until really until infinite was very, very similar. Like we got more fidelity out of it by the end in Halo 4 and 5. But it was there were a lot of numbers in there that were the same. So you'd hear people complaining about certain sort of physics things. Mm-hmm. The physics, reload speeds, aim assist, all that stuff was never the same between any game. So if you're gonna get to the 343 is worse than or bungee is worse than on some specific thing you better do your homework because a lot of times people will complain about things that haven't changed or were made by the same guy or, you know, um, <laughs> yeah. but the, also the Halo team, the, the, the Halo 2 team was way larger than the Halo 1 team with yeah. all new people doing all new things and Halo 3 larger still. And so there's a, there's a sort of population Venn diagram thing of moving around that um, makes those kind of um I think it it's kind of an artifice. Better to compare Halo 1, 2, 3, and Reach to Destiny, right? Because then at least you can follow that that thread that logically. Arc, yeah. Um, but but yeah, the we you know we we get the good and bad of that. There's a, a, a multiplayer is always the most contentious. I remember yeah. um, the biggest the biggest single moment like the one you're describing is uh, Halo2sucks.com, which was a real website that came <laughs> came out shortly after Halo 2. <laughs> ruined halo um while oh, oh, going bro. on to be the biggest halo uh, yeah so you were you can't make the people happy all the time um you can't make all of them happy ever um so you, you kind of have to pick your balance the, the other thing is like if you follow there's a certain thread and it's not just true of halo it's true of um sort of nostalgia and classicism in games and i you know i had this myself for loads of things even halo things i'm like no i prefer the, the i prefer the halo one magnum why can't we have that and the halo 2 this and the halo 4 that and so mm-hmm. on but the um the the number one um vector for those arguments and comparisons and conversations is um it's multiplayer for one thing because that's where the repetitions and sort of fine fine grain are coming down but if you actually follow that thread 
to its logical conclusion with, with, you know, you just, what are the biggest complaints? Follow that to some final conclusion and not Halo necessarily. Like let's say it's Street Fighter. In fact, Street Fighter is a great example because they have so many variants and they do such sort of fine tuning. You, you end up with, and there may be one single game, but usually that's not true either. But you might end up with somebody saying, I want, um, I want it to have the same exact gameplay as Street Fighter Alpha. But, okay, so we'll do that, but we'll make the graphics better. No, they need to be the exact same graphics, just higher resolution and higher frame rate. Well, if we up the resolution, the frame rate, we have to make slight change. No. And so you, if you follow that, you know, there's no single person believes that, obviously it's insane. But if you do follow that average, you sometimes end up with, so you want us to ship the exact same game, the exact same with no differences because the differences that are purely aesthetic impact the, the, the sort of objective um, measures of how the thing must feel or play or look or whatever it is. So you, you, you have to innovate too. And that's going to be the biggest pressure for anyone making sequels like movies. Um, okay. It needs to be as good as the first thing, but it needs to have all this new technology and be better as well. And that they, you know, that's our job. Right? That's everyone's job in gaming, especially if they're making sequels, is to continually make things better and continually invent new things and new ways to do things. You don't change anything for the sake of change. Like that's, I see that criticism leveled at a lot of games. It's that's never true. It, like yeah. actually, I can think of two times that I've seen that um, in the industry, let alone our game. Um, it's never true, and it, it's the you know the sometimes people want to come in and put their own stamp on things, but it's really as simple as even that. Um, it's, it's, if things are changed, there's usually an excellent reason for it. And change is the, I think the toughest thing to contend with in any multiplayer experience. And people see that not just between game sequels, but between monthly updates and, Mm -hmm. you know, um, tuning passes and and so on. So you can't, you have to just do your best. And, you know, if it, if it works, people will continue to engage in it. And if it doesn't, they will stop. Right. And, um, you know, that's, that's our job. Do you think 343's games have been treated fairly by fans and the press? Um, you know, we just talked about the, 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 the artifice of like labeling a thing, Bungie and labeling a thing 343. Like it's an artifice for me to argue for or against that as well, because then I'm guilty of doing the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so fairly is what did people like? What didn't they like? Do you feel like the many, two sets of people... games are judged by the same standards? Keeping in mind, no, obviously, this no, time technology no, they, evolves. They, and Yeah, I think they can't be because that those the, because then those things are real. So technology difference is real. Um, trends are real. Mm-hmm. Um, nostalgia is real. Oh, yeah. And so on. You, you Ultimately, you judge a game's success by its success, right? If, okay. if we one day in a thousand years ended up with a completely different audience with not a single person left that would suck to me right because mm-hmm. you'd want to bring people along for the ride even if it was bigger in a thousand years you feel like um, you'd failed in some way if that were the case would you feel that way i, I would but that wouldn't necessarily be true but right for the way the way that i more than it ever job, has yeah. and yeah part of my job is trying to satisfy the outcomes of things that people have been thinking about for a long time not mm-hmm. not necessarily gameplay at all but like storylines character yeah. development those kinds of things my job is to satisfy as many folks waiting for an outcome as possible. Um, and, and, and I think that's actually true of everyone's discipline, right? So 
Um, if somebody came to 343 from another game, they'd want to make a better version of the thing that they do in this game. Not yeah, change sure. it necessarily, but have it be better. So right. everyone's approaching it with, with that same intent. And you absolutely are going to get um, nostalgia goggles. But you're also going to get like, you, you'll get rewarded for innovation when, when it's successful. You know, the, there's, we will make changes in Infinite that people will do what they do with every, every iteration of the game. And some, sometimes they're right. Sometimes it's, it is nostalgia where, no, it should go back to how it was in that. That always happens. And that's why I use that Halo 2 sucks thing. It sounds like a really long time ago. Um, that was the most radical changes we ever made to any Halo game. Do a wielding, all the time was different. Every single weapon yeah. varied differently. Like in terms of just a shopping list of things, our true Halo and changes we made, Halo 2 in some ways was arguably the most innovative one we ever made because it, it really shook up the the um that's one of those reasons we were so nervous at midnight. And yeah. of course we did get home at 4 a.m. and find out that not everyone was happy. Um, but I think that's where Brian and I started to get tougher skin about that sort of thing. You're never going to please everyone. That was probably your moment where you realized truly there's no way you're going to please everyone. You also can't use that as armor to evade your responsibility, right? You have to listen and you have to, you have to hear the, the, the intention and the, and the accuracy against uh, with criticism as well as praise. Like you have to hear it and you have to, you know, maybe you won't ever go back and change that thing, but at least understand what they were saying, at least understand why they were mad. You, yep. Again, you can't make everyone happy and succeed, but you can, you can listen and understand what you can do better. So That's and if you're changing something, try and make the new thing better. Like maybe they won't come around to it, but maybe it is better. So. Yep. <laughs> That's a good point. Yep. What is it like guarding something like Master Chief's face for so long? I yeah. would liken it to maybe being like, the manager of Kiss in the 70s yeah. when they wore the makeup and they wouldn't be photographed without the makeup. Yeah. Um, he was described in detail in the Fall of Reach novel. So why right. have you guys not shown him? It's super weird, right? Like he, um, he, he's, an, he's absolutely an avatar for the player's persona. Uh-huh. Right? You're the player, you are Shane, you're, Shane is running through these corridors. You, when you talk about what you did last night, you don't talk about he... Or, oh, there's this cool moment where Master Chief shot 15 grunts. Well, no, it's like you did it. Yeah. So that's super satisfying. We're not the only game that does that. We're, the, we're one of the games that makes like kind of a thing about it, but it's almost a joke with the, you know, the double helmet reveal if you yeah. use the, the classic credits. But um, it, it's important to the game, but it's super important to, you know, if my 12-year-old girl, my daughter is playing Halo, I want her to say, I did this. I shot 14 grunts. Mm-hmm. Um. And I don't want to yank that away from them. But by the same token, we are telling a real story with a meaningful narrative. And the the narrative, you know, it's just it's just this biography. He's like a pale skinned, you know, giant white guy. Um, it's it's kind of irrelevant. Like his he'd still be, you know, if he was six one instead of six five, if he was African American instead of white, if he was um, you know, left-handed instead of right-handed. It's actually ambidextrous, obviously. The superhuman. <laughs> yeah. It wouldn't make any difference. Like those aren't biographical aspects of his character or behavior. Um, his 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 character and behavior. Well, there is a bit in the games which is quite light because he's just winning all the time, right? But in the books, he has much more character. He's a, like he's a leader. He cares about his team. There's lots going on. His background is super tragic. Like his backstory is one of the darkest in games. Um, you know, it's all meaningful to how he turned out the way he is. Like at some point, Master Chief made a decision 
where he knew what his background was. Like he realized all this horror and tragedy that he came from, but he decided that his job was to do the right thing anyway. Like that's the strongest he ever is. Is when like, oh my god, I was, I was kidnapped. This cruel, awful, illegal, you know, um, tragedy that's happened to me, and I still love my family and my unit and my comrades and my species and my planet and i'm still going to do the right thing to save them so it's um it ends up being it's funny to see the, the specifics that people get mad about but um also not surprising since we make that a satisfying part of playing the game so that you're not constantly yanked out of the experience and reminded that you are not kratos you're not um batman or whatever it is um you are you know you, you can be Shane and make it to the end of the game and feel like you're the hero. So it's a huge part of gaming. It's one of, you know, when we talk to the TV folks or the movie folks, it's one of the biggest differences. Like there's a lot of things that will happen in the game. that are super satisfying that are not dramatically satisfying. That goes mm -hmm. both ways. So you're going to have a hard time translating this game thing to the screen. And we can't treat the screen like it's a video game either. So there has to be a, you know, a real marriage of, the benefits of each format um same with novels and comic books and so on but um it's you know it's a that's a challenge that i think game adaptations have had and where they've been successful is like is it a good premise yes tomb raider did the first one work yes why because it was a good premise it's like you know female indiana jones with a decent story and a decent like mystery and whatever like that's that's the trick but not all games can do that like mortal kombat has a harder time with that because it the setup of that um, thing interferes with the drama in some ways mm -hmm. or interferes with like the three edge structure and so on. So you, you just have to look at the strengths of each media and figure out, do I, do I take this one-to-one -one and put it on the screen or do I translate it into something that has a similar effect, but uses the strength of the opposing media. So. Do you think, because look, you're right in the books, the novels, there are shades to Master Chief, but then I feel like when we play the games, it's cold. It's pulled back. You look right. at franchises like some of the ones you mentioned or like The Last of Us Part Two. Like I I would struggle to think that that franchise would be as successful if they had taken that approach with its main characters. Do you fear that not sort of providing more nuance to your lead character in the franchise could be a detriment to it eventually? Um. I, th I think it depends. It's going to sound hyper simplistic. Depends on the genre. Yeah. Like, I think if we were a third person game, we'd already have dealt with those things, right? Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, we, as soon as you take away the value of being, um, I think as soon as you take away the value of being of a vessel, like of, of, of controlling your avatar in the world, you have to do something else to replace that value, right? So the you know in an FPS the the value is an adventure that I am on. The value is the power, the sort of power fantasy and the empowerment I feel. Um, the you know like sometimes we'll talk to kids with with pretty profound disabilities, and it's kind of sound dumb. They like running around. Right, mm -hmm. not not just in Halo, but in any game, it's like an empowerment. It lets them do something that they want to do. Um, that might be leaping a fifty foot chasm and and you know shooting a, a scorpion with a rocket launcher. You have to you have to balance whatever it is you're removing with something that's equally satisfying. And with characters, that ends up being 
that can be biographical, it could be character development. But I think that the the genre in this case is super important. I think VR games are dealing with that in a yeah, very, very literal absolutely. way. Yeah. But it's a similar challenge. So you even if you know, we sometimes pull away to the third person, but not for long because yep. that is not what people want to do. They do want to reward, right? It's a little bit like RPGs where, you know, the very first RPGs, the games weren't terribly sophisticated, but they were sort of fun and addictive. But your reward was a big cinematic, yep. right? And then as the games get more complicated, that becomes less of the drive and the game becomes more of the drive. With FPS games, it's always been the game. A um, little bit of reward, pause to like, you know, wipe the sweat off your brow and, and move ahead. Okay. Um, without explaining why it was delayed i just would hope that maybe you would share a little bit what it was like when you realized that halo infinite was not going to make the launch of xbox series consoles i'll answer that question in a sneaky and despicable way by saying <laughs> i obviously can't talk about our development process i mean right. you know anyone who's worked in development knows the, the basic outlines of those things covid made things really complicated right okay. um but the uh but it, I'm reminded of the when I first started on Halo 2 in 2003. Um, I got there, everything's tickety-boo, making the most wildly ambitious game ever. It's going to be multiplayer Xbox Live. Then a few months later, I get called in a big meeting. I'd, I'd been given a little bit of a sneak peek that this was happening by Pete and Brian. Um, and they gathered the whole team uh, on the, the, I think we we're on the third floor, um, Millennium E in Redmond. Um, and uh, gathered everyone, said, hey, uh, we bit off more than we could chew. Um, we not only have to drastically inhale the scope of the game that we're going to deliver, but although weirdly, mostly like in terms of like content rather than innovation, which was kind of a relief, and that's one of the ways you sell the team in it. So all the work that you've done on this stuff, scrap it, um, We'll, we, we can cover that material in a sequel or we can use this elsewhere um, and we're going to delay, right? And um, if and I think, you know, at one point it was going to be the killer app for the launch of Xbox Live. We had to get confidence from the the, the organization and the company that it will be the killer app for, X, for Xbox Live and you need to give us the time to make it that. Um, and you, you've got a bunch of other content and you can keep, keep people happy until that point and this will give them also something to look forward to on that that um i think that that you know there's elements of all of that in where we are now but that was a big um that was eye-opening to me as a because again i wasn't a developer right just learning just learning this trade and seeing you know even to this day like the sacrifices that people had put in to get to that stage but then the faces that you could maybe just identify by their their pallor um of where they knew their thing was going to be yeah, chopped, delayed, right. radically altered. Yeah. Everyone, everyone's invested in all of it. So that that sort of stuff is, and, and that is a very different situation because it was just too big. Um, the you know ours was, it was less about us being over ambitious and more about us wanting to make what we had the best it could possibly be, and that's where we're that's where we're headed. What is it really like developing games during a pandemic? Because we don't. Like a lot of yeah. publishers won't share why so many games yeah. have been delayed over the last year. The ones that do will will a lot of times yeah. say it's the pandemic. What's it really like, though? Um, it's it depends on your. It definitely depends on your discipline and your persona. I think that you know I talk to there's folks on my team 
oh my God, they love working at home, right? And mm-hmm. uh, you, there was an initial ramp to get people up to productivity and they were even like doing metrics or, or individual groups were doing their own metrics. Like, oh, you're 70% efficient, blah, blah, blah. There, there are people who love it and there are people who hate it and want to be there. They're like, every time I go back into the office, you know, I'll like, I have to fill out a form and put my mask on and go there. And obviously the, the building is, you know, there's hybrid work is going to start and all that stuff. Um, but there's always someone in there because there's some people who just need to go in there to feel connected to it. So, yep. the, you know, the, um, they fill out the farm and they wear the mask and they go like, you know, get organized their desk or, yeah. or, you know, but there's also folks that have to be in that building. There are technical folks. Some are music folks. They just have to be there with their equipment. They need the gear. Yeah. Yeah. So you make it safe, uh, you make it comfortable and you make it efficient um, in that order. Right. Like, because then people are happy if you do it in that order as well. And we've got our systems down to a fine art, um, you know, meetings, weirdly, a little bit more efficient because we <laughs> Funny know how that, that works. Like if you're, yeah. If you're in a Zoom <laughs> or a Teams meeting, like you got to have an outcome. So people yeah. are, you know, they're tracking stuff or they're, they're cutting and pasting stuff from the chat. They're like, they're, they're more efficient. You're never late to your next meeting because you were walking from this, this, that. You know, yeah, that, and I think that's like forty minutes a day. Like, yeah, the, in my the case, transportation. Yeah. yeah, it's funny when it so all it adds depends up. on your. Like, I, I'm, I'm happy in either of those environments as long as we're engaged. That's yep. the main thing for me. But it's it has made things different, and there was definitely an initial ramp up that you know, even if we had been on schedule to to ship exactly then, probably would have bumped us for a month while we figured out our stuff. Yeah, but um, but there are some gains inefficiency and there's some losses but we'll i think it will mostly be a post-mortem process yeah. where not not microsoft or, or 343 but the world looks and says what was good about that and what can we take from that what can we improve from that and and so on there's already people you know they're they're folks are the differently <laughs> and, yeah and someone will someone will do that yeah. but you know in anecdotally it's it's I, I could go either way, to be honest. Okay. I've got folks on my team love it um, and are living their best life in their underpants. Um, and folks who just, you know, they just want to get back in and, and like they're going crazy arguing about no, no, creative no. or, you know, a lot of it might be their situations at home. If right. they're single right. and they're living alone, they may yep. have had it in the if first three months. If they're and... as unpopular with their family as I am with mine. <laughs> then there's a tension. <laughs> yeah. What is what is the best day you've ever had working on the Halo franchise? What's that one day where you were just so overcome with joy and happiness working on Halo? I I mean, you know, just to go back to, you know, we talked about a lot of the negatives with fans. Yeah, that's why I wanted to bring this to, up. Yeah. Yeah, if I had to pick one, um any of our launch launch events, the New York City one for Halo 3, the uh-huh. the Redmond one much smaller scale driving around on a bus with pizza you didn't know you could get pizza delivered to a bus um, <laughs> um actually in seattle they'll deliver pizza to a boat so if you have like a wow. little speed boat they will just tell them where you're going to be they'll bring it that's awesome um, the um but it's always been big fan events and i think even though i should be all like uh miserable and cynical and jaded um the the big series of live events we did last year a year and a year and a half ago like the, the before times um uh, with the the traveling Halo event, um, Outpost Discovery, like just completely revived my love for our fans who I already love. Great, but you're just out there and you're like, 
meeting multi-generational fans like here's a kid and it's like oh, i'm his dad and, and now I'm he's kicking my butt and, in yeah, multiplayer and like, <laughs> yeah and they're telling you stories that don't make sense chronologically like are you a time traveler and you're like you're just old <laughs> but yeah it's that the outpost discovery and i couldn't actually kind of i i keep mixing up memories between cities like philadelphia wait was that chicago and yeah uh, and kind of because it's like a it's a it's a wash in the best sense because it's, it's like a big blur when you go one of those tours. yeah and and our fans like of course there's there's a little bit of selection bias because kind of people who would pay money to come and see halo stuff or play yeah. a vr game with halo or meet developers um but you know that's your biggest biggest critics are often your most engaged fans, yep. which again is why you have to listen to them because like, yeah. they actually do know what they're talking about. Uh, and you might disagree with them or you might agree with them and, and maybe you just need to hear what, what they have to say. But those, you know, plenty of critics at those events, but passionate, informed, engaged critics are just as awesome as passionate, informed, engaged fans. Um, and the, I love that. Like you go there to learn, you go there to to just meet people and see that this thing that you do has had an effect on their lives. Like we meet people who got married through Halo all the time, like not every day, but every time we go to one of these these sorts of events, um, you meet people and their stories. Yeah, we we met each other playing Halo and we got married. That's awesome. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Teabagging has has created a lot of romance. <laughs> hilarious uh before we, we let you go every guest on three night weekend we ask them one question what are you playing what are you watching and what are you drinking this weekend okay so um i have um we were talking about tvs before we started up right yep. um i have a coleco vision like the 8-bit console and it's been in my house for I mean, years I, just, I bought it like a yard sale i'm like oh great one day I'll get an analog tuner and make this work somehow. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, I have a newish Sony XBR TV, and I was I was going to go and research how to do. Um, they, you need to like. There's a lot of ways you can do. You can like buy a VCR, plug the ColecoVision in the VCR, make it one of the channels on the VCR, and have the VCR go out to composite. Or you know, uh-huh. if you got a late model VCR like S Video, even. Yeah. So like that's <laughs> a cheap way to do it, but it's messy. Um, the you know, or you can buy these like almost purpose built, like for retro gamers. It's like a UHF, VHF, NTSC PAL tuner thing, and it that does the same thing as the the VCR. It's just a little bit more elegant. It's the same exact thing. I'm like, well, I better make sure this ColecoVision powers on, right? Because I I won't be able to get a picture, but I'll be able to see a scrambled picture even on a digital tuner. Mm-hmm. So I plugged it in, and a new menu appeared. <laughs> on my tv because it defect detected an analog source and <laughs> ColecoVision works perfectly on my my two-year-old sony xbr wow. tv it works brilliantly there isn't even any of that sort of like raster flicker that you get or like, under scan or over scan yeah no and it's scaled to widescreen like a purist would freak out when they saw it because they're presumably but with ColecoVision graphics like doesn't look bad at all yeah so I they're arcade playing, perfect yeah i would be playing ladybug Space Fury and what did I just pick up? About Zaxxon. Up. No, Zaxxon and Donkey Kong. Like I just looped through those so many times in my um, oh, yeah. quest for Quintana Roo, oh, which was like yeah. the Raiders of the Lost Ark with ColecoVision. Yep. Okay. Yeah. What are you going to watch and what are you going to drink? I am going to drink a lot of sparkling water because I had an accident. I have to take a lot of horse pills. Um, 
uh, I have to take these giant Tylenol um, for my broken collarbone. And uh, I'll be drinking a lot of sparkling water. Yeah, you can't really um, mix alcohol with serious drugs. No, no. And I, I had, you know, I did a, I took, I stopped, I always stopped drinking in January and do this like dry January thing. And, yeah. um, and I, I've gone a year and a half, but with no particular plan, like, I did the same I, thing. The last time I had a drink I almost, was uh, February yeah. 28th of last year. Since the yeah, pandemic no, started, was, I have not had a drop of alcohol. Yeah. Well, that was the thing. I, I'd done January and I was going in February and I was like, oh my God, I can't last till Cinco de Mayo. Um, and then the pandemic hit and I was like, yeah. well, let's just keep like, you know, when Kramer's running out of gas in Seinfeld, let's just see where it goes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the good news is I haven't felt any benefits from that whatsoever. And it's been a complete waste of time. So I might just go. I haven't felt a, any different either. Can, I'll be honest with no, you. Quitting I'm still drinking, fat. I felt no yep. different. Yeah. It didn't yep, change no anything. <laughs> yep. And what about watching? And, uh, Are you into TV or in film at all? I am. I am. I, I'm way behind on Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Okay. I also want to call him the Winter Snowman. Um, <laughs> my my daughter loved, um, I've been watching a lot of like things with her. She got me to watch Harry Potter. Not for me. Yeah. Um, she got me to watch um, uh, WandaVision. Loved that. Yep. And we've got to catch up on Falcon and uh, Winter Soldier. And I've been reading, rereading a Gene Wolfe book um uh because I, all i can do to work out is go on a recumbent bike um so i've been listening to an audiobook on that um which is the wizard well knight and wizard is two books and it's called wizard knight in compilation but yeah Fal- falcon and the winter soldier awesome uh where can <laughs> folks find you on social media and what where can they find halo infinite as well um i am um, at frankles on twitter uh halo infinite go to halowaypoint.com but there's you know as we get closer to launch there will be more and more things that that, that you know you want to go to xbox.com for some sort of premieres and stuff and uh that's uh facebook is just for angry aunts and relatives and <laughs> know where i am um yeah that's that's me All right. Well, Frank, thank you so much. I know you're really busy right now. Best of luck wrapping up Halo Infinite. I cannot wait to play it. Yeah, we're we're very excited. There's it's it's definitely my sweet spot for what I think Halo is. And we had this conversation. Everyone's is different. But like there's a lot of for as much as I go on about how you can't let nostalgia drive your thing. There's a lot of nostalgia in this that I think people will love. Um, and it's it's a really sweet spot for me in terms of um, what I like doing in games, which is I like having this like really predictable sort of solid combat encounters. And I like my big team battles, um, but I like exploring and I like wandering off and seeing there better be a rocket launcher in this cave and hearing Joe <laughs> State and say, how could there be a rocket launcher in this cave? You're the first human to ever come here. So that's <laughs> that's what I'm looking forward to. Awesome. Well, thanks again for talking to us and have yourself a great weekend. You too. Thanks so much. Be blessed. Now that we know what Frank is doing with this weekend, it's time for us to do you. Games! It's a slow weekend for game releases, but we have one huge one. Mass Effect Legendary Edition goes on sale today. It features remastered versions of the first three games in the franchise, and it's available now for Xbox One, PlayStation 4, and PC. If you want something a little more under the radar, Subnautica Below Zero launches for every platform, including Switch. 
It's a standalone expansion to the excellent waterlogged survival adventure, and initial reviews have been kind. TV and film! Hope you're ready to plant your ass on the couch all weekend long because there are tons of new releases in TV and film this weekend. First up, Castlevania Season 4 debuted on Netflix yesterday. It's the final season of the animated series, and so far, fans have loved it. Next up, Love, Death, and Robots Season 2 launches on Netflix today. If you missed the first season, go back and watch it right now. It is excellent. It is an animated anthology series, and it's available today on Netflix. Up next, Netflix is also launching a new film this weekend called Fairy. It's about a drug kingpin who sets out for revenge, and it's on Netflix right now. The biggest theatrical release of the weekend is undoubtedly Army of the Dead. It's a heist movie set in Las Vegas during a zombie apocalypse. It's only in theaters, and it is crazy gory. We're really excited for this one, so go check it out. Also in theaters is Those Who Wish Me Dead. Angelina Jolie stars in this thriller that finds a teenage witness being hunted by assassins in the Montana wilderness. It's in theaters and VOD. And yet another theatrical film. It's really great to see this as the pandemic recedes. Profile is about a female journalist who goes undercover to become an ISIS bride. It's also only in theaters. And then there's The Woman in the Window, starring Julianne Moore and Gary Oldman. This thriller is about a woman who befriends a neighbor only for her to disappear. And then finally, I told you it was a lot. Above Suspicion is a film that's appearing in theaters and VOD, and it follows an FBI agent who falls in love with a poor Kentucky woman, and it's based on real events. Music! Several great albums worth checking out this weekend. First up, Juliana Hatfield has a new album called Blood. She's a singer-songwriter from the Lemonheads, which is a seminal indie band from a couple decades ago. At this point, it's her 19th studio album, so check it out. Next up, St. Vincent has a new album that came out today called Daddy's Home. It follows in the same footsteps as their prior stuff, basically electronic indie rock with breathy female vocals. This album is a little different, though. It has several sort of offbeat compositions, and the female vocals sound a lot like one of my favorite electro bands, The Knife. The Black Keys are back with a new album called Delta Cream. However, this is a little bit different. It is their 10th studio album, but instead of being a bunch of original songs, it's a cover album of country songs. It's rife with bluesy undertones with an indie rock sheen. And the final album we recommend that came out today is by a band called The Chills, and their new release is called Scatterbrain. It's the first album from the indie quintet in three years and their seventh album total. We've liked every single song that they've released from the album thus far, and each one has its own unique tone and style. Sports! Here come the NHL playoffs, people. I am very, very excited about that. I know most of you probably aren't. But let's start on Friday. First, tonight at 9.30 p.m. Eastern, it's the Pelicans versus the Warriors on ESPN as the NBA starts wrapping up its regular season. Moving to Saturday, if you're a soccer fan, the Premier League has two games on NBC Sports Network starting at 7.15 a.m. It's Burnley versus Leeds, and then at 9.55 a.m. it's Southampton versus Fulham. If you want to check out some racing, at 1.30 p.m. it's the NASCAR Dry Dean 200 on Fox Sports 1. On to baseball, the Oakland A's take on the Twins on Fox Sports 1 at 4 p.m., and then finally on Saturday, the NHL playoffs kick off with the Bruins at the Capitals at 7.15 p.m. on NBC. Moving to Sunday, it's Penguins playoff day. But first up, the Premier League has a huge lineup on NBC Sports starting at 7 a.m. with Crystal Palace versus Austin Villa. 
And then at 9 a.m. is Tottenham Hotspur versus Wolverhampton Wanderers. I love that name. At 11.25 a.m., it's West Brom versus Liverpool. And then at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. my time, and I will be up in plenty of time to watch, it's the Penguins versus the Islanders in Game 1 of their seven-game series, and that is on NBC. Moving on into the afternoon, if you like golf at 3 p.m., it's the final round of the AT&T Byron Nelson on CBS. And then moving on into the evening at 7 p.m. on ESPN. If you like baseball, it's the Cardinals versus the Padres. And then to cap off the weekend at 7.30 p.m., it's Game 1 of the Lightning versus the Panthers on NBC in the NHL playoffs. Esports. It's a slow week for esports. No big tournaments to speak of, but there are a couple with some big purses. The Dota 2 Pinnacle Cup is going off this weekend for 100K, and then the Swing Sweet Spring number two, try to say that three times fast, Counter-Strike Tournament is also worth 100K, and that's also going down this weekend. All right. Thanks for checking out Three Night Weekend on Sifted Games at Sifted.net. A huge thanks to Frank O'Connor for letting us peek behind the Halo curtain for a bit. If you want to get Three Night Weekend when it's hot and fresh, head to patreon.com slash sifted and drop us a pledge. If you pledge at $4 a month or more, you'll get all our content early, like our flagship show Game Face and Pactor Factor, starring Michael Pactor. If you want to know when the show is posted for free on our YouTube channel, make sure to follow the site on Twitter at Sifted Games. You can also reach out to me at Dinfire if you want to suggest future guests. I'm Shane Satterfield reminding you that every weekend is a three-night weekend. Three-night weekend.